Good morning, Journey. Good to see you all. If we haven't met before, my name's Chris. Really glad we get to be together today. Uh, it's, it's not lost on me, and it shouldn't be lost on you, actually, either, that in reality, all of us in this room could be somewhere else, doing something else, and yet here we are. And I say that often, but I was thinking about it a little differently this week in preparation for Sunday. And I, I thought to myself, like, why are we here? Why are you here? Right, like that's even a good question to ask yourself right now in this very moment. Like, why are you here? What is it that we're expecting when we come into a room like this on a Sunday as a church family? And, and for me, the more that I thought about that, I, I believe there's something in the depths of, of all of us that is longing for an encounter with the divine. We're hoping that God might be here that God might speak, that God might move, that God might act. We're all longing for a moment of intimacy with God, perhaps, or maybe even a moment of belonging, of love, of being included, of seeing someone who looks at us with excitement, that they're glad we're here. And maybe even deeper still, I think we show up in spaces like this because to the core of our being, we want to be known. We wanna be known by God, we wanna be known by others, we even wanna be known by ourselves. And so honestly, let's not take that for granted. I commend all of you, all of us here for showing up today in this space, this time when we could be anywhere else. Like it's actually a brave and vulnerable thing to do, even if we show up with a tiny little part of us that says, yeah, God might have something today. So my prayer for our time this morning is that as we sing and pray and hug and share stories and sing and speak the word and then listen and wait and all of the things that actually happen during this time together, that in some small way, every single one of us would turn to the Lord and have, as the apostle Paul is about to teach us, our veils taken away. Because he says, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's what I hope we experience today. Just a tiny bit of freedom that only the Lord can bring. And so let's pray before we dive in to the text today and welcome the spirit of the Lord. Invite the spirit of the Lord to teach us and shape us and change us more and more into the glorious image of Jesus. Let's let that be our prayer. Let's pray together, Journey. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are here with you. You are already among us. You are already with us, and so we welcome you. We pray that you would give us that our lives would open up to an encounter with you. Speak to us through one another. Speak to us through your word, through prayer, through communion, so that we might come to know you more. We invite you by your spirit to teach us, to shape us, to transform us, to change us, and to make us more and more into your glorious image. We invite you to do that, Lord. I pray for myself this morning, God. As always, I pray that you would give me your words to speak and that everything that I say would be for you and from you, Lord. Let us meet you and know you and come to love you and know that we're loved by you. This is all about you and for you, God. We give you this time. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
We're currently in a series that we're calling Unlikely Leader, and we're looking at the life and story of Moses. And so we're nearing the end. This is the the second to the last installment in this series before Moses hands over the keys to Joshua next week. But I wanna bring you up to speed a little bit in the life of Moses, kind of a a recap uh, of life of Moses drive-by, if you will, because how how did we get here? We're gonna be in Exodus 34. How did we end up in Exodus 34? We've got Moses, who was supposed to be killed as a baby. They drop him in the water, He gets adopted by the powers that be. They raise him up. One time after he's been raised up, he goes in to see his people in Egypt who are in slavery in Egypt. He goes to say hi. There's some fighting going on. He kills a guy. Things escalated quickly from Moses. He goes back the next day. They're like, are you gonna kill us like you killed that other guy? And he's like, oh no, they're on to me. So from murder, Moses leaves to a place called Midian. And in Midian, it's where he eventually meets his father, soon-to-be father-in-law, Jethro. You know how that story ends. And then he spends 40 years in the desert being a shepherd. While he's walking around in the desert, Moses, this unlikely leader, encounters a bush that's on fire. And that bush is the presence of God. And the presence of God speaks to Moses and says, hey, do you want to lead your people out of slavery into the promised land. And Moses is like, no. He's like, I can't talk good. And God's like, okay, we'll get that taken care of. So they bring in Aaron, Moses' brother, who can talk good, and he talks for Moses, but actually Moses does most of the talking anyway. Moses then goes before Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. And And Pharaoh's like, nah. And then there's like all of this stuff that goes back and forth between God and Pharaoh. There's plagues, it gets wild. But finally, he decides to let the people go. And so Moses leads the Israelites who had been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years out of slavery and they're headed towards the promised land and they're on their way and they're getting to the Red Sea. And that's when Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends all of his army after Moses and the Israelites. Moses has some ideas. God has some ideas. Ultimately, they decide they're going to split the Red Sea together and the people walk across the Red Sea into the wilderness. And so it's in the wilderness then that like the next 20 chapters of Exodus take place. All kinds of things are going down there. There's food that's coming in the form of manna, which we didn't talk about, but you can read about it. There's water and rocks. There's this one time where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to be with God and God gives him the the commandments. But while Moses was gone, the people of God got a little crazy and they built a gold calf and started dancing and worshiping the calf, which I don't know how that happened, but it did. Moses comes down, he's like, no way, this can't be true, smashes the tablets. Like God had inscribed commandments on these stone tablets, he smashes them, things aren't going well. So what does Moses have to do? He's gotta go back up on Mount Sinai again and be with God and receive those commandments again. That's where we pick up the story today. Moses' second trip up Mount Sinai to be with God and receive 
the commandments, the Ten Commandments, you know them as, and the laws on these stone tablets. So Moses goes up there, right? And as he comes down then from Mount Sinai for the second time carrying the tablets of God's commandments, he's greeted by his community of people. This time, they behaved themselves. Things did not go haywire. And they see Moses coming down from the mountain carrying these tablets, and they're immediately filled with fear. Moses' faith is radiant. He's glowing from being in the presence of God. The glory is visible in Moses' face. He's shining proof that he's been in the presence of God. But why are the Israelite people afraid? Right, like certainly there's this fear that would have happened because at that time it was commonly understood that you could not see God and live. So perhaps there was a fear for their lives. Like that's really close to God shining off your face. We're afraid of that. But I think there was something deeper to it for the people of Israel. It's as if the Israelites saw their own failure in the radiance of Moses' face. This was a nation of people that God said, you are created to be a blessing to the world. But it's also a group of people who the last time Moses came down from Mount Sinai resorted to idol worship and dancing with a calf. And so to see the face of Moses shining with the glory of God is to see their shame and their failure again and again. Every time his face shines from being in the presence of the Lord, they're reminded of their failure. And so Moses has to come up with a plan. And he decides he's gonna put on a veil. He's gonna cover his face with a veil to protect the people and their hearts. But I wonder if Moses chose to put on a veil for himself too. Because on one level, why would Moses choose to wear a veil? To keep the people safe, yes. But I think there's also this element of maintaining power. And by wearing a veil, Moses was thus rendering a vision to his people that the presence of God that he knows is actually inaccessible to them. Interesting concept, right? Like if if we were just to end our understanding of God at Exodus 34 or the story of Moses, we might actually be led to believe that we are not capable of being illuminated leaders as Moses was that the presence of God is inaccessible to ordinary people like us. And so with this tension in place, I'm gonna lead us into the New Testament because we have a friend in the New Testament by the name of Apostle Paul. And as he's wont to do, he just goes straight into tension. That's where he lives. And so before we jump into the second half of 2 Corinthians 3, which is on your notes page, you'll see that there in a minute. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth He says, clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. He's saying to these people, the way you live is proof that Christ is working. He says, this letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Paul's about to do a whole lot of comparison between the old way where things got written on tablets of stone and the new way where things get written on human hearts. So here's Paul's progression. He's the one who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. And he's about to set forth a mind-bending progression as we follow the spirit of the living God who carves into hearts instead of tablets of stone. 
He begins by revisiting Moses. You had to know all about Moses to understand what the heck Paul's talking about. And so he revisits Moses and the tablets of the laws that God had given the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. Here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. Paul says, the old way with laws etched in stone led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way? Now that the Holy Spirit is giving life. If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? And we're like, what? (laughs) Paul is so confusing. When I decided that I wanted to use this to talk about Moses in Exodus 34, I was like, great idea, Chris. Then I started reading how Paul writes, and I was like, bad idea, Chris, because he's so confusing, right? But really, what he's doing is he's comparing the old way to the new way. And he's saying the spirit of God has something to do with that because now Jesus has come, lived his life, died, been resurrected, and left behind the spirit of God. But but he's kind of mean about the old way, isn't he? Like I I even ask myself in newfangled language, is Paul low-key throwing shade at Moses? Right, like is is he just a little bit frustrated with Moses? Maybe, maybe he is. And I'm gonna unpack that a little bit more in a second. But first, let's give everyone the benefit of the doubt. It's always a great way to begin any argument. Give people the benefit of the doubt. You see, Paul's form of argument is this. He's not going from this was bad to this is good. The form of argument he's using is that this is the lesser good and this is the greater good, right? You see, there's there's more to come and he's saying you've got to live into the more that is to come now because it's present among you through the spirit of the living God. However, it is pretty astounding that Paul would make the assertion he makes that the old way leads to death. Paul is Jewish. This is what he grew up on. This is what he's been raised on. This is what he's been understood to believe. And he loves the Jewish people. They are his people. And so the fact that he's saying that is causing all of these Israelites that he's speaking to to pay attention to what he's saying. Because he's, he's actually, he's being offensive is what he's being. And so they're probably adequately offended. So essentially he's saying there's glory attached to the old way that was chiseled in stone. But something was temporary about that and also condemning. So how much more glory is in the new way because it's the spirit who inscribes on human hearts a path that leads to freedom. You see, he's trying to compare these two. This this is gonna lead us to something really great, I promise, okay? Linda Belleville just says it like this. She says, when the sun has risen, the lamps cease to be of use, right? So that old way no longer is of use because the sun has risen and drawn light on what God has intended from the beginning. And Paul's pretty stinking confident he's on the right track. Even if Paul's not on the right track, he's confident. 
Then he goes on in confidence saying this. Verses 12 and 13. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses. Just listen to what he says here. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. This is like Paul's diss track of Moses, right? He's just laying it on thick. Like, Moses, what are you wearing that thing for? It's just fading away. And I think we're at the juncture of the sermon where it's finally fair to ask, what is a veil and why is Moses wearing one? Okay. So I was trying so hard to come up with an accurate picture of how to describe this veil that Moses would have been wearing. And, and I, I asked some friends, I was like, hey, do you think this is the first time Moses ever would have worn a veil? And you guys, I had like an image of him like repurposing a veil uh, to keep the, the glory contained or whatever. And they're like, nah, probably not. The guy lived in the desert and there's sandstorms. That's where they walk around. I was like, oh yeah. He, see, he had one for protection too, right? Eye protection as well. So he probably had his own veil, okay? And, and so he, he had a veil that he then put over his face. You could kind of call it the modern day sunglasses, they contained the glory. You could not see the glory behind the shades. But his view too was obscured on the way out. So Moses had this covering over his face so the people could not see him. But in, as a result, he could only see out a certain amount as well. And so unlike Moses who veiled his face to prevent public scrutiny of the fading character of his ministry, Paul's come out saying, we gotta get rid of the veil. We've gotta be seen and see. But still we have this question of why did Moses cover his face? Linda Belleville says this, a great deal of interpretive energy has been expanded trying to answer this question. And I can attest to that because I also spent a great deal of energy trying to get to the bottom of this. She says, some think that Moses wanted to hide the fact that the Mosaic covenant was only temporary. Others suggest personal embarrassment over the dwindling character of his facial splendor. Still others believe that Moses did it out of a righteous concern for exposing God's glory to a sinful people, and justifiably so after the episode with the golden calf. The difficulty is that the Exodus narrative does not help us one way or the other. So we're left to ponder all of these options of why Moses kept covering his face. And I think all of those have elements of truth to them, right? Because the reality is that the Mosaic covenant was only temporary. What did Jesus come to do? To fulfill the law, to show us what God intended all along. I think there's probably an element that when Moses had the veil on, the people assumed he had been in the presence of God. And as one who stood before people and had to lead people, I understand that temptation to make one think that you've been in a place that you haven't actually been. That could be true. Moses is human too. Still others, like she said, believe that he did it out of genuine concern and care for the people that he was caring for. But Paul is still ushering us into a life-altering climax. 
And he goes on by referencing the Israelites when he writes this. He says this now, but the people's minds were hardened. And he's speaking of the Israelites. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. What Paul's done is he's now transferred from Moses to all of Paul's people, the Jewish people, the veil is there now. And he's saying the only way we can remove this veil that doesn't allow us to see fully, now it's the thing that doesn't let us see out is if Jesus himself sets us free. Christ is the only way. And so here's how Paul says it. If Jesus is the only way for them to be set free, here's what he says. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. That's the climax that Paul is moving us to. Here's what Paul does. He puts forward this hope that whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil of spiritual darkness is taken away. And so now what's happened, Moses has become a model to be emulated rather than shunned. Every time Moses went into the presence of God, he removed the veil. That's the invitation. Come into the presence of God and he will remove the veil. He will see you for who you really are, which is why we keep the veil on, because that's scary. But you will be set free. You will be known by this God. And you too will be filled with that glory. To turn to the Lord is to be free of the barriers that would impede spiritual understanding. It's the work of the Spirit to remove anything that might detract us from encountering him. So that we might see and that we might reflect the glory of the Lord. When Paul uses this word reflect, it's a beautiful word. He's talking about a mirror. And immediately we think of mirrors in our day. But back then, a mirror in those days was made from a piece of, of cast metal. And, and the more polished the surface was, the clearer the image so essentially what was required was like an ongoing sense of elbow grease was needed to keep away corrosion, to reflect properly. And I think that's a pretty provocative picture. The life and ministry of one in the kingdom of God is depicted as a mirror that is in need of continual polishing so as to reproduce to an ever increasing extent the glorious knowledge of the truth of the good news of Jesus. He says it's a progress. It's gonna keep happening over time. Or essentially, Paul's saying, we're gonna become like what we admire. What's in front of us? Transformation is not a one-shot affair. Yes, there's this transformative encounter we have with Jesus, the spirit of God who sets us free, but transformation into the likeness with ever-increasing glory, as Paul is saying, is a, is a phrase that denotes 
This will take place over time. Being transformed into the glorious image of God is a process, but we've got to let him remove the veil. That's what he's inviting us to. And that is scary. Because to turn to the Lord and have the veil removed means we can't hide behind it anymore. Everything's exposed and out in the open. And Paul says, this is the type of community we must be. That's what he's telling the church in Corinth. Right? We began with Moses encountering God, the only one with access to his presence. Then Jesus comes and removes the veil of God's people and all are given the gift of the presence of God. And then Paul reminds us this presence is encountered in the freeing work of the Holy Spirit. Moses, the unlikely leader, is no longer our guide. The spirit of the Lord is. And the spirit that Paul is talking about is the Holy Spirit who is palpably present in the community and experienced reality, encountered in the gifts of the people, transforming lives and empowering the work of the ministry. He's already said that about the church in Corinth. They are the letter of that being true. But Christ has overtaken that community. And so spirit is not an essence or an abstract theological concept. It's the daily experienced mode of God's powerful presence in the community of faith. And it takes place when they let the Lord remove the veil. That type of community that Paul is describing isn't present when we're wearing veils, when we're covering up who we really are, when we're not allowing ourselves to be a part of this ongoing transformative process at the hands of the Spirit of God. If the, reveal, if the veil remains, the glory of the Lord then cannot be reflected and it can't be seen. So the question that I think we're leading to here is are we afraid to be changed into the person that God longs for us to be? To be made into his glorious image? Are we afraid of that? Are we afraid of going fully exposed into a community of faith? Which when you say it like that, I can see why that would be true. Are we afraid to look in the mirror for ourselves? I want us to wrestle ourselves with why we won't turn to the Lord or why we don't. Why do we keep wearing our veil? Whatever that might be, whatever that might be that you're hiding, that you don't want people to see, that you don't want God to see, that you don't want yourself to see. What is it that you're hiding? Because it seems that the human struggle is this, and I, I'm, I live it, that's why I know it, that we're all trying to veil our faces. Some of us have like half veils, right? It's like, you can see a little bit of me, but not all of me. Some of us have the full veil. Why are we all trying to veil our faces to put on this look that says we've got it all together when in reality, when we take the veil off, that's actually what really reflects the glory of the Lord. The one who shows us that we're all in need of his transformative work. We're all in need of the power of the spirit, the spirit who meets us and sets us free, every single one of us. And that's how the glory of the Lord is reflected in relationship because now we can see that. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And the spirit of God is here with us, among us, longing for each one of us to be ushered into the freedom that only he can provide. And I don't know what that looks like because there's a thousand ways it could look for all of us. But God knows what that looks like for you. And what I want you to do is have an opportunity to just sit before the Lord right now and invite him to remove your veil. Whatever it is that you're hiding behind, let the spirit of God have the last word and lift that veil. I'm gonna give you a few moments of just stillness and silence to do that. And then I'm gonna guide us a little bit in a moment of prayer as well. So take a few moments and sit before the Lord and then I'll lead us out. As we sit here in the presence of God, would you just take a moment and envision in your mind how God might come to meet you and sit with you right now. Envision God sitting there in front of you. God might come as a friend, as, as Jesus himself, as a teacher. see God in front of you face to face. And see in God's face eyes that are welcoming you in. Into communion with him and with yourself. And as you envision yourself sitting there, knee to knee with God, would you say to him in the, the quiet of your own heart, Holy Spirit, would you take this veil from me? And watch in the picture in your mind as he lifts it off of your face for you. And imagine God now seeing you as you really are and offering you an embrace. Hug this God who loves you, who sets you free. And as you envision in your mind right now an embrace with the all-loving God, ask him to whisper into your ear, what is the good news you have to share with me? God, we receive it. We thank you that you are a God 
who meets us and sets us free and lifts the veil from our eyes so that we might begin joining you in the transformative journey of being made more and more into your glorious image. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who modeled this life of living in the spirit, of trusting you, of not doing anything outside of you. And we thank you that he showed us what love looked like. Love on a cross, willingly dying, defeating sin and death, love fleshed out. We thank you that your son Jesus did not stay dead, but that the spirit that sets us free is the same spirit that raised him to new life so that he might come to us and then leave behind the gift of your spirit. And so we receive that. We receive what it is you have to say to us. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let us be free, Lord. And as we are free and as the veil is lifted and we are seen by you and still loved, may we reflect your glory to the world. May we reflect it through our actions, living in step with your spirit, being people of justice and mercy, love, compassion, vision, prayer. Let us go and be these people to one another, God, so that we might know ourselves before you and in community so that we can shine to the world the kind of God you really are. Thank you for meeting us here. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net. Thanks.